Hi guys, and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast with me, Christian Parkinson. This is the second episode of our new Peninsula War season. Last month, as you'll recall, we followed Sir Arthur Wellesley and his expeditionary force as they landed in Portugal and gave the French a good hiding at Relisa, proving that the British army was no longer to be a laughingstock. But can they keep it up? What will happen when they face the main French force under General Junot? Can Sir Arthur Wellesley prove that he is more than just a sepoy general? By the way, if you enjoyed season one of the podcast and are interested in the wars and weaponry of the Victorian era, then don't forget to sign up for my newsletter. When you do so, you'll receive a free ebook all about the Martini Henry rifle. It's basically the transcript of my fascinating interview with Rob from British Muzzle Loaders, the YouTube channel. He's an expert who I hope will be on the show again this season to talk about the Brown Bess and the Baker rifle. If you're listening, Rob, consider that a formal invite and I'll email you to follow up. Watch this space, guys, for that, because it will be excellent. Just go to redcoathistory.com slash newsletter and fill out the form to subscribe and get your free book. Okay, so without further ado, finish pipe claying your belts. Get those boots polished and fall in. We're heading for battle. It's time for death or glory against our old enemy, the French. Under a broad blue sky... Dotted with thin, wispy clouds, the British army hastily pulled on their boots and grabbed their weapons. Bugles sounded and sergeants bawled at the men. There were dust clouds on the horizon. The French columns were advancing. It was 8am on the 21st of August, 1808. The British force was positioned around the village of Vimeiro. I think that's how you say it, Vimeiro. Spelt V-I-M-E-I-R-O. They'd been camped here while two fresh brigades under Generals Ackland and Anstruther had disembarked along the coast nearby the previous day. Wellesley's army now numbered about 18,000 men, divided between eight brigades, plus the Portuguese element under Colonel Trant. There was the 1st Brigade under Major General Rowland Hill, who was a veteran of the Egyptian campaign, the 2nd Brigade under Major General Ronald Crawford Ferguson, a tough Scot who had served recently in South Africa. The 3rd Brigade under Major General Miles Nightingale. He joined the army in 1787 and served extensively in India and the West Indies. The 4th Brigade was under Major General Bernard Ford Bowes. It included the 1st Battalion, 6th Warwickshire Regiment of Foot, and the 1st Battalion, 32nd Regiment of Foot, Cornwall. Then there was the 5th Brigade, Major General Catelyn Crawford. The 6th was the Light Brigade, under Major General Henry Fane. It included the 2nd Battalion of the 95th Rifles, as well as the 5th Battalion, 60th Royal Americans. The 7th Brigade was under General Robert Anstruther, a former Scots Guard officer who had also served in the Egyptian campaign with distinction. And then finally the 8th Brigade under General Roth, I think that's how you say it, W-R-O-T-H, Palmer Ackland, yet another veteran of Egypt, and he'd also beat the French at the Battle of Maida in Italy in 1806. The British force was still awaiting the arrival of Sir John Moore and a further 10,000 men who were en route from Scandinavia and also due to land any moment. Wellesley had placed his men along three key features. On the eastern ridge, 
positioned north to south were the brigades of Ferguson, Bowes, Nightingale, Crawford and Ackland, with trans-Portuguese watching their extreme northern flank. On the hill in front of Vemeiro village were Fane's and Anstruther's brigades, while Hill's men defended the army's right flank on the western ridge. It's always hard to picture this sort of thing in a book or a podcast, so if I can, I'll put a map on my, on my website in the show notes. If not, just Google Battle of Vimeiro map. I think, um, is it britishbattles.com? I think I have a good map. Maybe try there. With the British reinforcements had also arrived Sir Harry Burrard, who was to take command of the force until Sir Hugh Dalrymple's arrival that was also expected any day now. As you'll recall from the previous episode, there'd been some political shenanigans because the powers that be didn't want Sir Arthur Wellesley in charge of this British expeditionary force. So he was no longer technically in command. But Sir Harry had decided to spend the night of the 20th, 21st on board ship so that he could finish writing his letters. He therefore missed the opening of the battle. But he'd already given Wellesley instructions forbidding any advance until all of Sir John Moore's troops arrived. This caution really annoyed Wellesley, limiting the scope of his plans. Sitting back and handing the initiative to the enemy and allowing them freedom of movement was rarely a prudent course in warfare. And it wasn't just the British who had been reinforced. The French also had new troops. They now numbered around 13,000 men, commanded by General Junot himself, who was in command in Portugal. He had organised his troops into two infantry divisions under Generals Delaborde and Loison, respectively. By the way, again, apologies for French speakers out there laughing at my pronunciation, but it's the best I can do. Hopefully you'll get the idea. They also had a reserve of infantry and a cavalry division commanded by General Margaron, as well as 23 guns. The French expected to drive the British into the sea and maintain their grip on Portugal. Like all French generals of the time, high on continuous success, Junot was aggressive and confident and immediately decided to throw his force into a frontal attack. It was a move that was anticipated by the Redcoats. John Patterson of the 50th West Kent Regiment and his men had been counting on it. This is from him. Junot, who was the general-in-chief, held the British in much contempt and endeavoured to impress upon the minds of his followers that their antagonists were a set of raw campaigners wholly devoid of military skill. From the testimony of some deserters who came into our lines, we learned that the marshal intended to give us a dusting and to brush the pipe clay out of our jackets. This cavalier determination of the marshal afforded no small amusement to our soldiers, who promised themselves good sport. They resolved gratefully to return the compliment by trimming the whiskers of the gallant veterans and powdering their mustachios, in so artist-like a manner that the aid of a friseur should no longer be required. Friseur, I think that's a word for hairdresser, I had to Google it. Junot directed four battalions of Brenier's brigade and a regiment of dragoons against the eastern ridge. But they quickly became entangled in the rough ground on an assault course of rocks and streams. Meanwhile, before Brenier had even got within striking distance of the ridge, Junot ordered an assault against Vimeiro village, defended by the brigades of Fane and Anstruther. French artillery opened fire and their infantry moved forward in a dense mass, protected by a thick swarm of skirmishers. 
two columns advanced menacingly towards the British, their flanks protected by cavalry, classic French tactics that had dominated European battlefields for the last decade. The British guns boomed in response. And as usual, Ben Harris of the 95th Rifles, who we met in episode one, was there. The first cannon shot I saw fired, I remembered was a miss. The artilleryman made a sad bungle and the ball went wide of the mark. He wasn't Irish, not quite sure what accent I'm doing. We were all looking anxiously to see the effect of this shot. And another of the gunners, a red-haired fellow, rushed at the fellow who had fired and in the excitement of the moment knocked him head over heels with his fist. Damn you for a fool, he said. What sort of shot do you call that? Let me take the gun. He accordingly fired the next shot himself, and so truly did he point it at the French column on the hillside that we saw the fatal effect of the destructive missile by the lane it made and the confusion it caused. Ben and his colleagues in the 95th primed and loaded their Baker rifles and moved forward in open order to combat the French skirmishers. Riflemen had the freedom to aim and fire at will, and this they did until their hands and faces were black with gunpowder. Gradually, they were pushed back by the weight of the French fire. But behind them, the 50th Regiment, nicknamed the Black Cuffs, because of the trim of their uniform, formed a two-deep line, all of their 900 muskets ready to greet the enemy. Sweating fingers clenched tightly on the triggers of their brown best muskets as they watched the French advance closer and closer. Captain Patterson was amongst them and takes up the story. The 50th Regiment, commanded by Colonel George Townsend Walker, stood firm as a rock, while a strong division under General Delaborde continued to advance at a rapid pace, from the deep woods in our front, covered by a legion of tirailleurs, that's their word for skirmishers, I think that's how you say it, tirailleurs, who quickened their pace as they neared our line. Walker now ordered his men to prepare for close attack, and he watched with eagle eye the favourable moment for pouncing on the enemy. When the latter in a compact mass arrived sufficiently up the hill, now bristling with bayonets, the black cuffs poured in a well-directed volley upon the dense array. Then, cheering loudly and led on by its gallant chief, the whole regiment rushed forward to the charge, penetrated the formidable columns and carried all before it. The French column, ripped apart by the volley, was then sent reeling back down the hill by an aggressive, perfectly timed bayonet charge. The second French column under General Charlot suffered a similar fate, raked with fire from Anstruther's troops who were well concealed by the undulating landscape. Junot's first attack had failed miserably. Casualties were heavy. Both generals Delaborde and Charlot had been wounded and all of their accompanying guns had been captured. Junot was now concerned for the advance of Brenier against the British left flank and sent three more battalions and six guns as reinforcements. In haste, he gathered his reserves and threw them into another attack along the same road that Delaborde's men had just followed to defeat. They advanced in platoon-sized columns, forced to step over the dead and dying from their early attack. As they approached the British line, howitzers, firing the new British shrapnel shells, rained musket balls and pieces of shell casing onto them, tearing ragged gaps in their advancing columns. Ben Harris, looking on, noted what fine-looking men the Frenchmen were, with their red shoulder knots and tremendous mustachios. As they came swarming upon us, they rained a perfect shower of balls, which we returned quite sharply. 
Whenever one of them was knocked over, our men called out, There goes another one of Boney's Invincibles! The scene was quickly enveloped in thick, foul-smelling smoke, as these Invincibles were hammered with converging fire of three infantry battalions, turning the slopes into a charnel house of dead and wounded Frenchmen. Meanwhile, General Kellerman had managed to lead two battalions of grenadiers around Fane's left flank and into the village of Vimeira. Anthony Hamilton, a runaway apprentice from Donegal and his comrades, were ready for them. He recalled, God, I'm not going to do an Irish accent. <laughs> I'm going to do generic working class English. A column, strongly supported by artillery, was again sent forward to gain possession of the village of Vimeiro. Here, our regiment, the 43rd, was posted close by the road that entered the village. The enemy advanced upon us with determination and valour, but after a desperate struggle on our part, were driven back with great slaughter. It was not only a hot day, but a hot fight, and one of our men by the name of MacArthur, who stood by me, having opened his mouth to catch a little fresh air, a bullet from the enemy at that moment entered his mouth obliquely, which he never perceived until I told him his neck was covered in blood. He, however, kept to the field until the battle was over. Whew, that's when men were men, isn't it? Viewing the fight in the village from nearby was Ensign Charles Leslie of the 29th Worcestershire Regiment. They'd been in the thick of things at Rolisa. He says, While watching with intense interest the progress of the enemy's attack on our centre, we observed a party of the 43rd Light Infantry stealing out of the village and moving behind a wall to gain the right flank of the enemy's lines on which they opened fire at the moment when the enemy came into contact with our troops in position. The French had been allowed to come close. Then our gallant fellows, suddenly springing up, rapidly poured on them two or three volleys with great precision and rushing on charged with the bayonet. We soon had the satisfaction of seeing the enemy broken and retreating in the utmost haste and disorder. At this point, with the French battered and falling back, Colonel Taylor led his 20th Light Dragoons into a charge. They cut their way through the retreating French, but they enjoyed the taste of blood too much and became overexcited and advanced too far, a story that was to be repeated over and over again by British cavalry during the Peninsula War. Captain John Patterson witnessed what happened. The horsemen, unsupported, charging the enemy with impetuosity and rashly growing, going too far, were involved in a difficulty of which, in their eagerness to overtake the stragglers, they had never fought for. Getting entangled amongst the trees and vineyards, they could do but little service, and suffered a loss of nearly half of their number, the brave commander being also one of those who fell in that desperate onset. As the fighting around Vimeiro Hill now petered out, the focus of the battle shifted to the British left on the eastern ridge. Here, William Lawrence in the light company of the 40th Regiment had already had a busy morning. He said in his memoir, The right of our line was engaged at least two hours before a general engagement took place on our side, which was the left. But we were skirmishing with the enemy the whole time. I remember this well on account of a Frenchman and myself being occupied in firing at each other for at least half an hour, without doing anyone any injury. But he took a pretty straight aim at me once, and if it had not been for a tough front rank man that I had in the shape of a cork tree, his shot would have proved fatal, for I happened to be straight behind the tree when the bullet embedded itself in it. 
I recollect saying at the time, well done front rank man, thee doesn't fall at that stroke. And unfortunately for the Frenchman, a fellow comrade who was left-handed came up to me very soon afterwards and asked how I was getting on. I said badly and told him there was a Frenchman in front. I pointed out the thicket behind which the Frenchman was and he loaded his rifle so as to catch him out in his peeping manoeuvres. Mr Frenchman again made his peep around the bush but it was his last for my comrade, putting his rifle to his shoulder, killed him at the first shot. Nice work, son. Brenier and Solignac's, Solignac, Solignac's brigades were now finally in position and launched an attack up the steep slope. Solignac's men struck first, but they had underestimated the strength of the British who had been lying down behind cover, avoiding incoming fire and keeping their positions a secret. The Redcoats let the French advance to within 100 yards before General Ferguson ordered the troops up and forward in line. Then they let rip. Flints snapped against frizzons. Sparks ignited powder and 3,000 muskets barked in unison, a wave of fire that decimated the French column. Thomas Pocock was with the 71st Regiment. I think he was Scottish, but I'm not going to try that. We gave them one volley and then three cheers, three distinct cheers. Then all was death. They came upon us crying and shouting to the very points of our bayonets, our awful silence and determined advance that they could not stand. They put about and fled without much resistance. At this charge we took 13 guns and one general. As the British celebrated their victory and counted their captured guns, Brenier's brigade which, had been, brigade, which had been missing all morning in the rugged terrain, if you recall, they were the first who got deployed to attack, suddenly emerged unobserved from a deep ravine. He threw his infantry at the 82nd and 71st regiments, while his cavalry tried to outflank them to the east. The British were driven back in a furious fight, and the guns recaptured. Witnessing this unexpected turn of events was Charles Leslie of the 29th. We were instantly ordered to form four deep, which formation afforded the advantage of showing a front to meet the enemy in line and at the same time sufficient strength to resist cavalry. On the enemy approaching the low ground, a destructive fire was opened upon him by the 71st and the light companies of the 29th and 8th regiments which had been lying there concealed by willow beds and bushes, unknown to us and much less to this column of the enemy, whom, after returning an irregular fire, broke and fled in utmost disorder. So there it is. Every single French infantry battalion had now been broken. They had no more reserves. Beaten and disordered, they began streaming away from the field as quickly as they could. The sight of the French in headlong retreat was a rare one, and the redcoats were elated. John Patterson recalls, As far as the eye could reach, over the well-planted valley and across the open country lying beyond the forest, the fugitives were running in wild disorder, their white sheepskin knapsacks discernible among woods far distant. The ground was thickly strewn with muskets, sidearms, bayonets, accoutrements, and well-filled knapsacks, all of which had been flung away as dangerous encumbrances. Wellesley could see that there was now a genuine chance to pursue the French and destroy them as a fighting force. He had thousands of fresh troops. The brigades of Hill, Crawford and Bowes had not suffered a single casualty. Their morale was high and they were desperate for their chance of glory. Now was the time to crush the French here in Portugal. By now, Sir Harry Burrard had arrived on land. He had astutely left Wellesley in charge as the fighting raged. 
But now that the French were beaten and streaming to the rear, he stepped in to take charge. Wellesley galloped over to him. Sir Harry, he said, now is your chance. The French are completely beaten. You take the force here straight forward and I will bring round the left with the troops already there. We'll be in Lisbon in three days. But Sir Harry was an old school general and wasn't willing to take a risk. He also didn't like hearing from a young upstart like Wellesley what he should do. But in fairness, he was understandably concerned about a lack of supplies and transport, as well as the weakness of his cavalry. But instead of grabbing the initiative and destroying the French completely, he ordered the army to halt and wait for Sir John Moore's troops to arrive and disembark. And so the British failed to complete their victory. They had shattered Junot's army, breaking every column that was sent against them. They had inflicted 1,800 French casualties and taken another three or 400 unwounded prisoners. Their own casualties were 135 dead and around 500 wounded. A high proportion of those coming mainly from three regiments, the 50th, the 43rd and the 71st, who had all been keys to the victory. At the close of the battle, Harry Ross Lewin of the 32nd Regiment, another Irishman, went to explore the battlefield, witnessing the bloody aftermath of the struggle. He was an officer, so I'm going to go with generic officer accent. Upon entering the churchyard of the village of Vimeiro, my attention was arrested by very unpleasant objects. One, a large wooden dish filled with hands that had just been amputated. Another, a heap of legs placed opposite. On one side of the entrance to the church lay a French surgeon who had received a six-pound shot in the body. The men who had undergone amputation were ranged around the interior of the building. In the morning they had rushed to combat full of ardour and enthusiasm and now they stretched pale, bloody and mangled on the cold flags, some writhing in agony, others fainting with loss of blood, and the spirits of many poor fellows among them making a last struggle to depart from their mutilated tenements. Outside he found scenes equally as disturbing, he says. A great number of the 43rd lay dead in the vineyards, which part of that regiment had occupied. They had landed in Portugal only the day before and they looked so clean and had their appointments in such bright and shining order that at first view they seemed to be men resting after a recent parade rather than the corpses of the fallen in a fiercely contested engagement. This corps, which suffered so severely, had passed us in the morning in beautiful order with their band playing merrily before them. How many gallant fellows that we saw then marching to the sound of the national quicksteps, all life and spirits, were before evening stretched out, cold and stiff on the bloody turf. Despite Barard's failure to follow up successfully, the Battle of Vimeiro was still an excellent victory, admittedly against a smaller enemy force, and did more for British pride and stature than any European land battle since Malplaquet, during the War of Spanish Succession in 1709. The classic French tactics, which were a swarm of tirailleurs ahead of dense columns of infantry with artillery support, which had previously swept all their enemies before them, had failed against the th thin red line of British infantry, well drilled and well commanded. That too deep line had shown its worth, wrapping itself around the French columns and hammering them with volley fire before breaking them with well-timed bayonet charges. Wellesley had shown his understanding of the modern battlefield. He'd kept his men out of sight and under cover for as long as possible, saving them from the, from the worst of the enemy artillery and musket fire, and keeping the enemy guessing as to their exact numbers and location. 
He had used his skirmishers brilliantly and made sure that his flanks were secure. These were some of the tactics that would become his hallmark and help to make him one of the greatest British generals of all time. No longer after Vimeiro could he be dismissed simply as the sepoy general. The entire British army was now desperate to pursue the beaten French before they could reform and reorganise, but Sir Harry still refused. Early on the 22nd, his brief stint as commander ended as Sir Hugh Dalrymple arrived to take over. He had even less experience of leading armies in the field and lacked any decisiveness that was needed. As the three lieutenant generals debated fiercely what their course of action should be, there was a sudden flurry of activity and excitement in the camp as a group of French horsemen approached under a flag of truce. General Kellerman had come to talk terms. Barard and Dalrymple may not have realised how bad the position of the French was, but General Junot certainly did. If the fighting continued, there was a real chance that his battered army would end up stuck in Lisbon, blockaded by sea and besieged by land, surrounded by a rebellious population intent on insurrection. He wanted a truce. He knew that was his only option. And a truce suited Barard and Dalrymple. Even Wellesley could see the benefits. The chance for a lightning advance against Lisbon was now gone due to the inaction of the generals. On the 30th of August, a deal was signed, later to be known as the Convention of Sintra. The French, whose bargaining skills had been well drilled during the revolutionary era, negotiated excellent terms for themselves. They were to be evacuated from Portugal on board British ships with all of their arms, artillery and baggage, including private property. Dalrymple, Barard and Wellesley all signed the document. Understandably, the Portuguese junta were livid. They had not been consulted and were particularly upset that the French would be able to escape with all of their plunder disguised as baggage. Militarily, given the missed opportunity immediately after the Battle of Vimeiro, the convention did make some sense for the British. It meant that they would be able to liberate all of Portugal without having the inconvenience of assaulting the French strongholds at Elvas, Fort La Lippe, Almeida and Peniche. Although Wellesley signed the convention and could see the benefits, he was still seething at the behaviour of his superiors and made his distaste clear in a letter to the Duke of Richmond on the 27th of August. He says... The French got a terrible beating on the 21st. They would have been entirely destroyed if Sir H. Barard had not prevented me from pursuing them. Indeed, since the arrival of the great generals, we appear to have been palsied and everything has gone wrong. I am not very well pleased between ourselves with the way in which things in this country are likely to go on, and I shall not be sorry to go home. Most of the soldiers, like Captain Leach of the 95th, were equally angry at the convention and felt that if Wellesley had been allowed to chase the beaten French after Vimeiro, it need never have happened. He says, The wisdom and propriety of the government in sending Sir H. Burrard to supersede Sir A. Wellesley and immediately afterwards ordering Sir Hugh Dalrymple to supersede Sir H. Burrard is a question I shall leave others to decide. My own opinion on the business has long since been formed. The old and homely adage that too many cooks spoil the broth. I conceive to have been verified on this occasion, much having been said as to, to the propriety and consistency of Sir L. Wellesley, A. Wellesley even, having ever consented, as far as he was concerned, to the Convention of Sintra. The simple question appears to be this. 
Had Sir A. Wellesley retained the command of the army after the battle and followed up, as he unquestionably would with a certain number of brigades, the French army without allowing it time to rally and reform, whilst the remainder of his force he had pushed on with all haste by another route and thereby gained possession of the passes leading to Lisbon before Junot's army could reach them, would the Convention of Sintra have taken place. So that's an incredibly complicated way of saying he thinks if Sir Arthur Wellesley had been allowed to pursue the French, they would have beaten them and the Convention of Sintra would never have happened. Anyway, let's carry on. As Wellesley fired off angry letters to anybody who cared to listen, the army marched along the coast into a jubilant Lisbon. Captain Patterson was touched by the excitement of the local Portuguese as his troops filed into town. He says, The sentiments they entertained towards us were heartfelt gratitude. Those feelings were expressed with vehemence and fervour, not merely by a class or a faction, but by all ranks and ages amongst the people, who saluted us with loud and deafening huzzas, and with cries of Viva los ingleses! As we marched beneath their crowded windows, a shower of garlands, flowers, olive branches, and other harmless missiles fell profusely upon us. But not everybody was so keen to see the English arrive. The French army was still in town, waiting to embark for home on board British ships. There were dangerous moments as the two rival armies came into contact. Ben Harris accompanied two officers of the 95th, including Captain Leach, actually, who we, we hear from regularly in this episode and in the previous episode. While waiting to rendezvous with them at the end of the day, he decided to quench his first in a basement bar full of Frenchmen. He says... At first they appeared inclined to be civil to me, although my appearance amongst them caught rather a sensation. I observed, and three or four rose from their seats, and with all the swagger of Frenchmen, strutted up and offered to drink with me. I was young then, and full of natural animosity against the enemy, so prevalent with John Bull. I hated the French with a deadly hatred, and refused to drink with them, showing by my discourteous manner the feeling I entertained. So they turned off with a sacré and a bleu, and reseating themselves, commenced talking at an amazing rate all at once, and no man listening to his fellow. Although I could not comprehend a word of the language they uttered, I could pretty well make out that I myself was the subject of the noise around me. My discourteous manner had offended them, and they seemed to be working themselves into a violent rage. One fellow in particular wearing an immense pair of mustachios and his coat loosely thrown over his shoulder, his arm being wounded and in a sling, rose up and attempted to harangue the company. He pointed to the pouch at my waist and then to his own wounded arm, and I began to suspect that I should probably get more than I had bargained for on entering the house, unless I speedily managed to remove myself out of it, when, luckily, Lieutenant Cox and Captain Leach entered the room in search of me. They saw at a glance the state of affairs and instantly ordered me to quit the room, themselves covering the retreat. Better take care, Harris, said the captain. If you get amongst such a party as that again, you do not understand their language. I do. They meant mischief. Harry Ross Lewin found himself stuck in a hotel crammed with French soldiers. On the advice of the owner, he removed his uniform and was secretly ushered up to his room. He recalled... My first care was to place every article of furniture against the door, and then I stretched myself on my humble couch, but had no sooner done so than I was assailed by such myriads of bugs that I did not for a moment venture to dispute the post with them. 
In a few minutes more, I heard some persons attempting to force the door, and as I had a considerable sum of money on me, and as the attempts to effect an entrance were renewed repeatedly, though without success, I passed the remainder of the night standing opposite the door with my sword drawn. A few days later, the French began boarding ships for home, chased all the way to the docks by an angry crowd of Portuguese civilians. Ross Lewin again witnessed the chaos, he says. There was an unusual commotion amongst the people and I found that it was occasioned by the sight of a large, large packing cases and the officers' baggage that the French soldiers were con conveying to their boats. The Portuguese mob carried stiletto knives in their sleeves and proceeded to stab every straggler they met. The British officers took all the single Frenchmen that they saw under their protection and saved the lives of several. Back home in Britain, there had been euphoria at the news of the victory at Vimeiro. Bells were rung, cannons fired and newspapers plastered with triumphant front pages. But as soon as the details of the Convention of Sintra came to light, brought to London by an apoplectic Portuguese minister, the reaction quickly changed. The press, public and politicians were greatly angered. They could not understand how, having been victorious on the battlefield, the commanders had let the French off the hook, allowing them to leave Portugal on British ships. It soon became a political hot potato. The generals becoming the most unpopular men in Britain, a disgruntled Wellesley requested to be relieved of his post and returned to Britain. Shortly afterwards, Dalrymple and Burrard were recalled themselves. All three men were then called to face a board of inquiry. In November at the Royal College in Chelsea, seven generals under the presidency of General David Dundas listened to the evidence. After three weeks of deliberation, they came to their decision. Surprise, surprise, there was no grounds for a court-martial. They concluded that, and this is from the report, It is our unanimous declaration that unquestionable zeal and firmness appear throughout to have been exhibited by Lieutenant General Sir Hugh Dalrymple, Sir Harry Burrard and Sir Arthur Wellesley as well as that the ardour and gallantry of the rest of the officers and soldiers on every occasion on this expedition has done honour to the troops. Despite this official let-off, Dalrymple was publicly rebuked by the king and found himself singled out as the scapegoat, relegated to obscurity and disgrace. For Wellesley, though, it was a minor bump on the road to becoming Britain's most successful general. In January 1809, he was to be thanked by Parliament and posted back to the peninsula to lead a new campaign. But that's a story for another day. First, we have to follow Sir John Moore and the rest of the army into Spain, where supply lines will be stretched, the elements will reap a heavy toll, and Napoleon himself, with a huge juggernaut of an army, will make a brief but spectacular appearance. You don't want to miss the next episode, it's going to be fascinating stuff. And on that point, not missing episodes, I highly recommend giving me a follow on social media so that you're always informed when new ones come out. I'm on Twitter and Instagram where I use the handle at redcoathistory, or one word. Drop me a line and let me know if you're enjoying the podcast or if you have any ideas as to how I can improve it. I'm always looking to learn. Also, I'm hoping to release the first of my new series of books, The Military History Geek's Guide 2. The first one, which is currently being edited by my good friend Christopher Biggs in America, is the Military History Geek's Guide to the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. Should be available on Amazon Kindle by the end of May, so watch this space. Alright guys, take care, keep your powder dry and keep your bayonet sharp. <laughs>